everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin from Continuum. Follow the rules. These are the procedures. Quality control. Does all this sound familiar? Ever since the days of Henry Ford and his assembly line, the conventional wisdom in business has told us that specialized and often routinized tasks help ensure a consistent level of high-quality output. But times have changed and the accelerated pace of competition and the increased need to innovate means that we can't expect the best work to come from blindly following the existing rules. And as much as we like to think of companies as efficient machines, the fact is that when human beings are involved, variations are going to occur. And companies might be better off figuring out how to leverage our humanness rather than trying to make everyone act consistently all the time. Well, today's resonance test guest has made a career out of leveraging employee engagement in all of its human forms and harnessing that to deliver higher and higher levels of quality. Celine Schillinger directs innovation and engagement for global quality at Sanofi Pasteur, a company that distributes more than 1 billion vaccines annually. She's earned numerous awards for innovative engagement initiatives in the world of pharmaceuticals, including French Businesswoman of the Year, which I am sad to conclude I will likely never win. Celine came in for a chat with Continuum's John Campbell, Senior Vice President of Experience and Service Design, to talk about approaching quality from a human-centric and social movement perspective, and how giving up control actually reduces your risk. You have this fantastic oh, title, yeah. uh, Head of Quality Innovation and Engagement. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what uh, Head of Quality Innovation and Engagement does? Well, yeah, you could put basically anything you like under this title, which is very convenient. And what I put under there is um, uh, the um, facilitation of a social movement in the workplace to improve performance. So this is the short version. Mm -hmm. The long version is we have a, we are a big company. We manufacture vaccines worldwide in factories that are like pretty large, pretty big, uh, like 2,000, 3,000 people in each factory working around the clock. Uh, we have people, you know, in sterile suits, uh, working in very tough conditions, manufacturing a very complex product that is a vaccine. Um, we have a long, uh, the vaccine takes a long, long time. Some vaccines take like two years to manufacture. It's very precise work. It's very complicated. And um, Sorry, not two years to create, just yeah, two yeah. years to even produce. Like to the, create, to oh, produce. Wow. Oh, yeah, okay. no, to create. It, take, like, it takes like Decade 20 or, yeah, years yeah, yeah. Yeah, of research. No, I'm just talking about the manufacturing step, manufacturing and quality control. Um, since you inject a, um, a, a product into a healthy human, you don't want this human to become sick, right? So you are not allowed to make any mistake to have anything wrong in the product. So quality is, the, uh, is of utmost importance, sure. I would say, uh, in our industry. And not only because we want healthy products, but because it's also a legal requirement. We, are, we have to follow very stringent um, procedures and, and standards and regulations. And if we don't, or if we make, like, if we deviate a little bit from that, uh, we might have our factories shut down mm -hmm. by uh, the authorities, by the health uh, authorities of, of, of each country. So it's really a matter of life and death in this company. And so we have found that quality works better when it comes from people, when it comes from people's desire, when it comes from them and their, their head and their heart. For a long time, we have tried to impose quality or we have believed that people would just follow procedures because they had to 
and that they were operating like um, very rational humans, you know, almost robots, and that there was no diversity in the way you react to a procedure or you interpret a procedure. Maybe even to a, to um, to prevent interpretation, we have gone so far in detailing the procedures that by doing so, in a way, we have prevented people from being intelligent, from being clever, from using their common sense. It's as if at some point when you go so much in the detail and you explain everything, and um, it's as if you asked, in a way, people to remove their brain when they come to work and allow them to take it back when they leave work, you know? A locker to put it yeah, in. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So my work is, um, is about doing things, uh, uh, reaching enabling quality, but from a different angle. And regaining, having people regain their uh, full intelligence, their autonomy, their emotional intelligence, um, creating a living system that generates quality instead of having uh, the perfect robots uh, follow the procedures. Because as soon as you have people in the picture, uh, y the organization is no longer a machine. As much as you want it to believe, uh, you, you want to believe that it can operate as a machine, it doesn't. It can't. Um, we're human beings, so we do change things. We, it evolves, etc. So how do we, instead of trying to reduce variations, how do we leverage them? I love that. You know, how do we create a more intelligent system that um, that embraces diversity and that is because it's diverse and it's um, it's um, it's complex and it leverages this complexity rather than trying to eliminate it. It becomes more agile and um, better at producing what we want, which is um, this complex product that is the vaccine. That's great. Mm -hmm. I love that idea of not worrying about reducing variation, but leveraging it. Because uh, I, I think so often, or, or to this day, we still so so much rely on kind of the Henry Ford assembly line approach, yeah. even in people things yeah. and in knowledge-based businesses. Which has served us well mm -hmm. for decades. Huh? We, we have gained a lot from uh, this uh, industrial you know, automation and uh, um, this, this design, this industrial revolution uh, brought us most of, I mean, many of the good things that we enjoy today um, as customers, as employees. But times have changed and times have accelerated and we cannot no longer rely on a system that has a small brain and many, many hands. Uh, we need the brain to be present in every cell of the organization. We need, we need every cell to reproduce, to mirror the complexity of the whole organization. Um, and that's very different from what happened in the past. You used to specialize you know, people into the most the narrowest field of expertise and believe that uh, as um, processes ruling their interactions were okay, then the whole thing would be okay. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't work anymore. And how do we know it doesn't? Well, it's very easy to see that in quality because quality is monitored to death. So you could see quality issues happening over and over and over again. Not to say that we were making bad products because all those products were actually not released to the market, but precisely because of that, we were 
preventing people from having access to vaccines. And we were also losing a lot of resources. We were making people work for products that were not suitable to be put on the market. So, so we'd had data that showed that our system was not working. But it's funny to, to see that we, a lot of people don't believe it's because of the system. They still focus on the symptoms. They, they see, oh, we have a lot of, um, I don't know, human errors. Uh, let's fix the human errors. And then once this is fixed, oh, we have um, long lead time. Oh, let's fix the lead time. And then we, and then there's another. So that's, you, you solve problem A, and then you switch to problem B, and then it's problem C, et cetera. But in fact, you just focus on the, the surface. You just address the surface which is the symptoms created by a sick system. Mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't heal the system itself. And by, by seeing things through a different angle, by approaching quality from a human-centric and social movement perspective, I think we have started to really heal the system. And it shows, actually. Mm -hmm. we, we've seen great uh, business improvement. Is there, a, or has it been difficult, when, when you think of quality, generally it's very analytical, very yeah. engineering based, oh, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, whether it's a mm -hmm. Deming and yeah, TQM yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, and Toyota, mm -hmm. uh, has that been a challenge for you to, to, to try to convince more engineering or analytically focused minds that there is this whole person you should bring to work and enable and... First, uh, I'm smiling because the first, my first reaction when I was offered to join Quality was, oh, oh my God, <laughs> you know? this is this sounds so boring. I, I, yeah. What can I do there? I'm a human person. You know, I'm a I'm a I'm a people person. I'm a, I'm all about communications and interactions and marketing and that kind of things. And and Quality seems like way way uh, I mean a different a different world really. But then. By uh, accepting the challenge and finding it fun to um, basically do the opposite of what quality was used to, um, I realized that quality is actually an amazing, amazing place to connect people to the purpose and to the customer and to what the customer wants. And the customer, especially in this particular field, I mean, the customer needs something from you and that is really really important and if you um don't take care of quality or if, if you address quality from a, a mechanical perspective if you you are not true to your mission and your purpose so quality in fact is i would say almost a perfect place to put the heart and the passion and the engagement piece in that it's really interesting it has been uh, and counterintuitive but it makes well, sense yeah. as you describe it right? but it yeah. has been in fact confiscated do you say that in mm -hmm. english mm -hmm. by by engineers or and not to say that engineers are bad absolutely not but <laughs> i'm speaking in the control of engineers here. <laughs> but um that is um a, a certain perspective on engineering influenced by mechanical you know thinking has dried out um, the, uh, the 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 has dried out quality or even how how organizations run and even Deming has been misunderstood Deming got a lot of things right mm -hmm. I mean he he understood it needs to work as a system uh, so the system thinking and, and involvement of operators and um, not focusing on uh, errors or mistakes, but working together as a team to um, 
to improve the way things are done. Uh, Deming was a genius. It has been, there's only like 20% of his learnings that have been um, transmitted. Mm. And you know why? I actually asked uh, one of Deming's experts, I said, why is so? I, I didn't realize Deming was so um, visionary, you know? And he said, yeah, what, he's, what he brought to the world was 20% tools and 80% philosophy and mm. thinking and human th people thing. But people have focused on tools because it's easier. <laughs> they didn't take the rest. And the rest was, well, 80% of his thinking, way more important. You just gave me, well, it got me really excited. You just gave me a great idea for an article that you should write or we should write or something because the, the parallels for what we do with innovation capability are, are right there. I think so, so many organizations look at human-centered design and innovation as the tools or the methods as, oh. a pro, as opposed to the philosophy and the approach. Yeah. And that it's you can't just paint by numbers. Mm. You have to actually think, act, behave in certain ways. And it's not just cookie cutter. But because things are about repeatability mm -hmm. and, um, you know, uh, reduced variables and the like, mm -hmm. it becomes this thing where it's like, well, let's focus on the tools because those are easy to deploy, right? Yeah. Changing a person's mindset, mm -hmm. scaling that is a lot. A yeah, lot especially harder. since changing a person's behavior starts with changing your own behavior. That's right. That's right. And in the world of change, this is very uncomfortable. In companies, ex people who are in a decision making position want the others to change in right. general. It's very, and they uh, stay the same. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> and it's uh, it's very unusual to see leaders like uh, our chief quality officer, whom I, I have the pleasure of working with, um, adopt a very radically a radically different approach for themselves too, mm -hmm. and take risks and do things differently. And uh, it's very very unusual. It is. Mm. There's uh, one of my favorite quotes is um, Upton Sinclair, the journalist and writer. Uh, I think this was like in the 1920s, he had a great saying. He said, it's hard to convince a man of something if his job is predicated on him not understanding it. Exactly. Which I think is is, is a, a nicely, nicely put, right? And we all come across that. How have you, what are some of the, again, to get tactical, yeah. um, what are some of the methods or approaches that you did use to start to change the mindset as opposed to just deploying tools? Yeah, exactly. So some of them, um, there's a variety of um, of of ways, I wouldn't say tools um, and approaches. Really, the um, the key to our system, I would say, was to put the purpose at the center of everything we do. And the purpose is not imposed by um, a happy few, you know, and a little group of um, clever people. The purpose was co-designed in the beginning with people of uh, different ranks, different functions, different sites, different countries, different cultures. So once you, um, and it started with this simple question really, which is, what is it we want to fight for together? And I like this idea of fighting for something because it puts us in, a, in an activist mindset. And we're, we're, we're not just doing a job, we are fighting for something. And it triggers a different set of emotions, of, of emotional reactions, of, of connection with what we do. Um, I think it's easier to tap into an, um, 
an untapped potential in organizations, which is the desire to be um, to contribute to something that's bigger than ourselves. And I think it's a very human desire. Um, we, when when we believe it doesn't exist, it's because we don't look clearly. We don't we don't look enough. Uh, it is here. It has been sometimes um, uh, buried under passivity or or cynicism or things that organizations create without the intention of creating, of creating sure. that, of course. But um, I see a lot of people complaining about people not wanting to take responsibilities or not wanting to you know, stand up. So they complain and then they give them more injunctions and orders. How do you want things to change? You know? So you gotta you gotta start at the top and, right. and change the way you interact, and it's it's, a, it's a, interestingly also in our in our approach, we have decided to focus uh, on a deep level of change rather than what the organizations usually address, which is a surface level of processes, um, policies, and structure. This is where organizations usually start doing change and they believe that um, it's good enough. In fact, real change happens at the at a deeper level of identity, relationships, and information. Creating an, a common identity, making uh, information available to everyone, and creating more quality relationship, this is where change happens really. So by using um, this purpose-driven approach, and by um, creating a common identity across all sites, all um, but this common identity can be imposed on people. So the peer-to-peer approach is really important. So how do you leverage peer-to-peer? How do you use social networks to do all the the tools and techniques of social movements have uh, inspired us a lot? And um, using the internal social network, so that's a tool, but. Um, it's a tool that generates a change in behaviors. Right, That's really right. interesting because it leverages it. It levels out the uh, hierarchical distance. It removes and which are uh, inherited from you know old management uh, theories and which are useful in a way, but which prevent quality by preventing the speak up culture. Sure. Um, by making people afraid of um, taking action, or, or and by, um, by over flooding, we, we we give too much work to too few people in our organizations. Right. We the management levels, you know, every time you create a pyramid, and and you ask, you load the top of the pyramid with control and reporting, etc., because you don't trust people. Um, you basically create a, a layers and layers of, of a bureaucracy and bottlenecks, and that slows down the whole organization, mm-hmm. and that makes it sink. Right. So in order to... Um, but there's a perception that it's about consistency and reducing yes, risk. Yes, and, absolutely, yeah. which is funny because you see that when you actually give up uh, control, you actually reduce risk. Right. Because people uh, become more aware of... Um, and it, it goes with training people, of course. Huh? You can't just like release control and uh, and l- let uh, people like ignorant about the consequences of what they do or, or how they should do things. So what we did was um, 
really support this uh, movement, this uh, activist movement, by a strong effort in my, in in terms of training, uh, training delivered by um, peers on the job uh, through adult learning methods, uh, these kind of things. So moving away from classroom, you know, PowerPoint-based uh, training, that's also very important. So yeah, basically. Um, we, we adopted those, um, this purpose-driven approach, peer-to-peer, -peer, social network, um, creating a, um, uh, so it's, it's about changing leadership, really. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a new leadership approach. Uh, it's a, a leadership approach that is focused on coaching and supporting rather than controlling and, and being, um, having all answers. The most powerful question, the most powerful leadership question I have found those those years, those few years, is how can I help? And it's very unusual for leaders to ask it. How sure. can I help? <laughs> They're supposed to know. They're supposed to be helped. Uh, they're, um, they're not asking this very, very simple question. They don't want to um, maybe appear... Um, you know, limited or in their knowledge or I don't know. But um, but those that understand the power of this question, oh my God, <laughs> you should see that. They, it changes everything. Hmm. The relationship with people, the, the flow of information, the trust, and the commitment. That's great. Hmm. Is there, I was, I was going to ask this a little later, but but this is a, a nice segue to it. Um, in in uh, one of the, the articles I read, there was... Um, the story of you know a single female in leadership and now two or at the time of the article there were two females um and you know we're, we're certainly seeing this um at least the discussion around needing more women in leadership mm -hmm. um do you think this idea of not being comfortable asking how can i help is mm -hmm. kind of a an, mm -hmm. an issue men have right <laughs> there's they feel like they have to have all the answers well certain men certain men sure and maybe those men who are chosen by the organization because they fit into classical leadership criteria. They are assertive. They, they look like, you know, real men. Right. <laughs> they are analytical. They know everything about everything. And, and that, they aggressively well, ask yeah, questions. Exactly. So we, uh, in a way, we, we still promote, I think it's changing, but slowly, we still promote leaders that display the opposite of the competencies we need today, which are competencies of inquiry, of collaboration, of um, you know humble leadership, this kind of things. So the answer, I think, is not just more women, it's more different people, uh, more Ooh, different Different men. traits, well, yeah. whoever has them. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. more different uh, academic backgrounds, more, um, uh, social science uh, uh, experts, uh, more non-experts, uh, more generalists, uh, more people from uh, improving the cross-hierarchy collaboration is is also so important. You can bring more diverse people at the uh, through the ranks, you know, at, at the top of the of a pyramid, and that would be great. That would be already a great move. But if you keep a rigid a pyramidal structure uh, and you don't evolve into a more networked um, way working, then you miss, you miss the train, mm -hmm. I think. Right. 
and, and earlier you, you talked about social movement and talking about, you know, you, you don't want to remove people's use of judgment and common sense and, and the like. At the same time, is there a need for policies and processes in order to scale? Or are you saying, you know, there is a way to scale without those? There is, absolutely. But the most powerful, um, the way they work is when they are co-created, when they belong to the teams. So how do you, and it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting question, and it's not, um, it's a question that goes beyond quality, but how do you maintain consistency or, or improve with rules that have to be, that, that are very like, strong and important and that needs to be respected, but that belong to people? How do you create ownership and a, on a sustainable basis? That means you have new people coming in, you know, you have people leaving, retiring, etc. How do you maintain both a stable basis of rules and a constant ownership. Um, and that's a, that's a very interesting learning uh, challenge for the organization. Mm -hmm. It's something that we can definitely uh, address um, with peer-to-peer um, -peer training, with, um, again, modern methods, making training more, um, being able to, to be challenged. Once we have... Um, reached a great system for a team, for example, we tend to believe that, oh, we, we got to protect that and, it, and it, it should never change. You know, it's, it's done and now it's a, it's a good system and that's the way we're going to work for the next 50 years. It shouldn't be this way. Right. Uh, because uh, even if the system is good, then new people will not have this or, or the sense of ownership might be lost or it will become like meaningless mm -hmm. with the years, if you don't refresh, if you don't, you know, renew. So you got to be, you got to accept it to, to have, to be challenged, even on your great achievements. Sure, mm. sure. There was an article in the New York Times a couple weeks, maybe a month ago, about, ironically, an internal social network, a mm. wiki, right? Mm. Um, and I was thinking about that, not only because of, of your, your discussion around the, the way to leverage social networks and social movements, but also the unique challenge that this uh, this woman within the CIA had, which was she was pushing for this so that um, they could, uh, through this wiki, share information across various intelligence agencies within the government and this, that, and the other. And it was shot down multiple times. And then I believe, if I recall right, she was moved or uh, to another department or whatever and was uh, was not promoted, right, because she was, you know, uh, a troublemaker, so to speak. And... Now this wiki is, I mean, it ended with a wonderful story about how the wiki was built. It's, you know, um, helps prevent all kinds of, you know, bad things from happening. Um, and that it was this persistency that she had in working towards that. Um, which certainly made me think of you, right? Around <laughs> not just the persistency you've had, um, but, you know, some, you know, conversations that bosses have had to have with you about mm. about, about situations. And then specifically in, in one of the pieces I read, um, you you had a, uh, a promised promotion that wasn't given and stuff. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about, uh, not to dwell on the negative side, but on the positive side, can you talk about kind of that, mm -hmm. where do you get that persistency from mm -hmm. and how do you keep at it mm -hmm. when there are, you know, the the uh, the conservative masses and the large organizations that mm -hmm. may not? It is definitely a challenge for change makers because you're, you see what is possible, what would be possible, and you, you find it, 
um, extremely attractive and you, uh, at least in my case, um, you may be uh, over-optimistic in uh, evaluating the time it takes for the organization to reach there. And um, I think it's the, the case for everybody when we were in love with a topic and uh, we believe it's going to be easy to explain the others and they will naturally fall in love with it as well. And they don't. <laughs> I mean, not all of them. So uh, it does take... Uh, resilience, absolutely. It does take take patience. It does take learning also. And um, and I realize that sometimes I have been a little bit um, uh, either too ambitious or too direct or um, or didn't think of um, thought of a solution that might have been great for a small team that was not so great for a bigger team or I don't know. So it takes learning. Um, but as you learn, you you grow, um, you get more experienced in how to deal with people who are not uh, accepting your ideas, and that's that's the power of um, I mean that's the challenge and the power of diversity. Mm-hmm. You can't just work with people who agree with you, um, and that's what I that's what I try to bring the organization to. You know, more diversity. That means we. Uh, including myself, need to work with more people who don't share our ideas. Mm-hmm. And yet, we need to all work towards a common goal. The resilience I have uh, found that has helped me so far was um, comes a lot from the, the, con- the connections I have with um, with crowds, really, because my job is really about collective. And the power I see in the... the, the um, hunger I see for change and innovation and progress that I see in those crowds, those people who are uh, still not often given a voice and that um, when they are, the energy and the passion and the the, the authenticity of their um, energy, you know, towards this really makes me continue and uh, we've we've had great results as well this work is being recognized so I'm um, I'm pretty optimistic about the the future I think it's it can still be hard for isolated change makers but once you you understand the how to connect with other people um, it gets easier way easier Finding some um, partners in crime, so to yeah. speak, some, uh, <laughs> some, some people that will help figure it out with yeah. you. Yeah, and some of them are the top leaders yeah. of the organization who um, find in this a great way to achieve what they have been trying to achieve through old methods and that they found it, they, 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 they found it slow, they found it not um, uh, up to their expectations. And with this they realize, some of them realize how the power and the, um, the achievements you get get through those new ways of working. Yeah. But it, it, it goes with accepting to be a different leader as right, well. Right. So that's probably what's holding some people back. Um, but, you know, if you have more and more examples of uh, modern leaders, you tend to, I, I think this, things are shifting progressively. Mm-hmm. Not everywhere, not the same rhythm, but they are evolving. Mm-hmm. How, how does someone listening to this who's looking to affect change in a large organization, how do they start? Is it one topic, one one thing? I would say they start where they start at uh, where they feel their heart beats a little bit faster. 
where they feel they have an affinity, a strong, like something that resonates with their values, with who they are, with their core, you know. And to me, it was diversity. We could have been something else. Um, I've been raised by parents who have uh, who are extremely open-minded. They are artists. They travel the world. They um, go and help humanitarian projects, whatever. They've always welcomed different cultures, and um, and always found it a, a great uh, source of um, enrichment and uh, and pleasure. And and so I've I've found the same. Probably I was shaped by that. And um, and I found pretty frustrated in corporate environments to see the lack of diversity. So that's for me was a starting point, but it could be a very different starting point for anyone. But I would say, any anywhere where there's passion for change, for changing something, whatever. But th- this is uh, not accepting this current situation, not mm-hmm. accepting the status quo. I think this is a great place to start. That's great. That's great. Um, one thing that so so this affects innovation, but also culture and employee experience. One thing that I'm reading a lot more about, and it's just in the news, is this whole workforce of the future. Mm-hmm. What does this mean for employees? With you know, uh, you think of a call center. What does that mean for chatbots uh, in uh, assembly and manufacturing, robots, mm-hmm. um, AI? And what is the role of a, a human as the world evolves? Mm. Have you thought a little about that and what that means for, for people and motivating them and exciting them? And yeah, I still haven't put my mind around that completely. I haven't either. Still, no, oh, no. it's still, they are fascinating topics. They're very complex. I, I still believe, I, I hope, <laughs> that uh, we still need humans for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. In our industry, we manufacture um, living products. You know, we, we, we work with living organisms, bacteria, viruses, etc. And it's like it's like growing a garden in a way. You cannot predict exactly how things will grow and what will need to be done, etc. You can't. It's hard for me to imagine uh, robot gardeners that would do a great job at having you know wonderful gardens. They can grow salads. Uh, always the same kind of salad, but we don't. We need more than that, right? Right. So um, I would say, in many industries, the uh, human element will remain necessary, mm-hmm. as long as we, um, as long as we leverage fully the human capabilities. If we try to reduce the humans to a robot, then robots will become cheaper and more convenient, of course. But I believe there's a better future for organizations, for businesses, and for society. It, it, it makes me think, going back to your point around enabling people's common sense and mm-hmm. their emotions, I mean, that's exactly what you're, right? Like yeah. you leverage them or help them in, enable people to use those skills that um, you know, yeah. an AI potentially doesn't. Yeah, I, I don't think, I don't see robots, so maybe AI in the future. I don't know. But robots don't do continuous improvement. Mm-hmm. They just do what they're being said to do. What they're just the continuous pro- part. Uh, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not the improvement exactly, part. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And humans sometimes find amazing solutions um, that work, that they are proud of, mm-hmm. that stimulate new improvements, 
um, because they are being recognized, because they are proud of that. It's, um, it's a virtuous system that is, uh, it's a sort of an exponential, you know, system that is possible with humans, that is not possible with robots. So maybe, I don't know, in the future I will be wrong, but for the time being, I hope I'm not. No, no, me, yeah. well, me either. Yeah. Is there, um, is there a benefit to, to this social movement and approach when it comes to attracting talent? So organizations really have this war of ta- war mm-hmm. for talent, trying to, to make sure they're getting the best and the brightest. Um, and, and it seems to me that, that if you're changing the way leaders act, if you're starting to empower people, mm-hmm. that that becomes very attractive to people on the outside. I hope so, but I'm not sure. Okay. Because it might scare people as well. People who try, who um, enter the the workforce, who people trying to join a large healthcare company are looking for something that may be not corporate activism. <laughs> uh, they might look for um, for purpose, obviously, and, but um, the ones that are maybe most innovative would join biotechs or would join. So, um, in a way, I'm not sure. I'm also not sure because uh, if you we talk about the millennials and uh, I have I have seen quite many millennials and not all of them are hungry for change in the workplace. Right. Many of them are hungry for change outside, but not so much uh, in. And since they're young, they they don't like they're not sure about how to challenge things. You know how to challenge people, and so these are the the, the facts that make me think that not so sure. On the other side, I would say uh, it, we are getting a lot of recognition, a lot of uh, you know b- good public um, uh, image uh, about that. And I know some people have actually applied to our company because of that. Cool. So it it's a balance, I would say. Maybe some some people are not expecting that and join and are surprised and some people are looking for that but would they look for that in a big established worldwide you know global company or would they look for that in smaller companies Uh, i don't know Mm -hmm. but i hope this can inspire more people and more companies and um, there's still this regulation piece you know being in a very controlled environment that makes it tricky it's not easy but um I think even in in a regulated environment, you have po- the possibility to become a human-centered uh, organization. Definitely, there's always a way. If if you say it's impossible, it's because you're lazy. <laughs> That's great. I do want to to end then on. Um Something that happened pretty, pretty. Uh, that's pretty cool. Um, you were re- recently named Knight of the National Order of Merit, and while you didn't creak in here in armor, um, <laughs> that's got to be pretty cool. What, like, what did you think when you heard about that? Maybe talk a little bit about that experience. At first, I thought it was a mistake. I received, oh, really? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't expect that at all. I received an email from uh, someone in the company congratulating me for this award, and I and there was it didn't write my my name, my first name, and I thought this person got it wrong. And I, <laughs> I felt so embarrassed for him <laughs> that he sent the wrong email right. to me. <laughs> and I was about to to write him back and say, hey, I'm sorry, it's not me, you know, you must be wrong. Uh, you must have made a mistake. And so I, be- before looking, I didn't want to, to look, be stupid, so I just like Googled, just, like what just is to it? be sure. Yeah, like the website. <laughs> and yeah. I found out that it was actually true. It was me. 
<laughs> so you must have so, been completely shocked. I was totally shocked. I was totally surprised. It was, uh, but it's, yeah, it's a big, big, big honor. Yeah. Um, my son was uh, thrilled. Uh, he's 12 years old. And um, so now he he is motivated to get a biggest award, a bigger <laughs> award than that, <laughs> to do better than his mom. That's good motivation. It right? is, yeah, yeah, it is. Absolutely. Nobel Peace Prize, or he's going to go all the way to, yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, so no, that's a, that's a, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. It makes me uh, makes me think that I'm on a good uh, track. Uh, I'm on a... I, there's still so much things to do. I'm. Uh, it's pretty humbling, actually, because uh, when you see what, what... I have done little, in fact. I have done very little. Um, so when you see that this little is, is, is recognized by such a, an honor, you think, oh, okay, well, maybe I should do more. <laughs> well, I hope you don't stop. No, I won't. There, there's, there's a lot more yeah. to, to, to push forward on, I'm sure. You can but count this on is amazing. Me. Yeah. So. Well, thank you so much, Celine. Well, thank I appreciate you. It. Thanks for the conversation. Really like Definitely. it. Definitely. This All is right. great. Thanks. The Resonance Test Podcast is where we seek out people who are consistently able to go from inspiration and cool ideas to fully implementing them. Innovation in this form can be found in all sorts of fields, from health and tech to food and the workplace, and we love hearing how different people go about doing this repeatedly. Continuum is a global innovation design consultancy with studios in Boston, Milan, Seoul, and Shanghai. At Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, it's not really innovative until it exists. If you want to learn more about Continuum and the work we do, go to continuuminnovation.com. Thanks to Celine and John for their great conversation today. Many thanks to Kip, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Unending appreciation to Ken Gordon, our producer, for his masterminding behind the scenes. This has been The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin. And to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Mm-hmm.